This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Mark and I'm a detective. Not like on the force or anything, a private eye, like in the movies. It's kind of the family business. My grandfather was one, and my dad and I grew up in that world, and it was only natural that I go into it too. It's not as exciting a job as you would think if you go by Hollywood. It's mostly sitting in your car for 10 hours at a time, waiting to take pictures of cheating spouses to show the spouse who is paying you to prove that they're being cheated on. It's kind of a bummer sometimes. People get married, they get cheated on, they get divorced. So often, kids are caught up in the middle of it all. Now and then something crazy comes your way, though, or something exciting. I want to tell you guys about one of the crazy ones, the craziest. It happened a few years ago, and sometimes I still can't convince myself it was real. I'm not religious, and I don't believe in the supernatural. At least I didn't until Benson Street. Now, I'm not so sure. A woman got a hold of me in August of 2020. She had lost contact with her sister. She came into my office and spun a pretty crazy story. Her sister lived in a small town in Michigan called Franklin's Green. My client was named Shelley. She was 62 and her sister was a little younger. They were close and spoke almost every day. But for the last month, her sister hadn't answered her calls. And then Shelley did a little digging and came across a couple of news stories that were a little hard to believe. They said that everyone who lived on Benson Street had gone missing. There were eight houses on the dead-end street, and every person who lived in them had seemingly vanished into thin air. I mean, I read the stories myself. After Shelley left, I did my digging, and she was right. It was crazy, and I was a little surprised the story hadn't gotten more attention. I called Shelley back that night and told her I would take her case. I didn't usually travel that far for a job, but the next morning I packed a few things up and left my office in Cincinnati. Hours later, I arrived in Franklin's Green. There was a little crappy motel and I checked in and then headed right for Benson Street. It was smack dab in the middle of a little sleepy neighborhood, lower middle class, mostly ranch style homes. The entrance to Benson Street was completely roped off with yellow police tape stretched between a telephone pole and a stop sign. I parked nearby and decided to canvas the surrounding streets. I knocked on doors, stopped, and chatted with an old man out watering his garden and stuff like that. No one had much for me. Everyone on Benson Street had simply been there one day and gone the next. No one knew why. The people I spoke with were happy to share their theories with me. The street was full of drug addicts who had all gotten high and wandered off. There was a gas leak that got everyone in their sleep, and the gas company removed the bodies to avoid suspicion. Nothing I was told seemed very likely. By the time I had spoken with a number of people, the sun had gone down. I debated going back to the motel and starting the next morning, but I thought I would at least check out Shelley's sister's house. I grabbed my flashlight from my duffel bag in my trunk and ducked under the yellow tape. Shelley's sister was named Mary, and she had been married to a guy named Tom for nearly 40 years. They had two children who were grown and lived out of state. Shelley had told me they were worried about their mother and father as well and hadn't been able to reach them nor had Mary and Tom reached out to them. Mary's house was third on the left, and I did a slow circle around it, shining my flashlight in the dark. I'm not sure what clues I was looking for, but there were none to find. One thing that took me by surprise a bit was just how big the houses on Benson Street were compared to the rest of the neighborhood. I made my way back around to the front of the house and went up onto the porch. I tried the doorknob and was surprised to find the house unlocked. I was sure the cops had been through all of the houses on the street, but as I stepped inside I saw no evidence of this. 
I worked through the ground floor slowly, resisting the urge to turn lights on as I went. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself, and one of these houses with lights burning in every window would be very noticeable to anyone who drove by Benson Street. The home was eerie. It really was as if Mary and her husband had simply vanished. There was a half-empty can of Coke on the kitchen island, and dishes that needed to be washed in the sink. A cloud of flies buzzed here and there, eating the food residue that had been waiting to be cleaned away. A door in the kitchen opened up to a set of stairs leading down. I decided to save the basement for last and went upstairs instead. I worked slowly, just as I had on the ground floor. There were four bedrooms. The master bedroom was the married couple, obviously, and another of the bedrooms was a guest room. The third bedroom had been converted into a home office. The laptop on the desk there was dead. I found the charger and plugged it in, then went into the fourth bedroom, which had a treadmill and an exercise bike. I had saved the master bedroom for last, and worked my way through the dresser there, finding nothing but clothes. The closet was another story. There was a shoebox up on the shelf, hidden underneath folded bedsheets and a hand-stitched quilt. I pulled the box down and opened it, surprised to find a knife. The knife was ornate, the blade curved, and the hilt made of bone and wrapped in leather. Etchings had been carved into the bone and I unwrapped the leather to better see. I can only describe the etchings as strange runes, almost like an alphabet. They were very letter-like, but damned if I knew what they meant. I took pictures of the knife and then replaced it in the box and hid it once again. All that was left was the basement, and I was surprised to realize I had been putting it off, even dreading going down there. I had no other choice, though, and headed down into the kitchen with heavy steps, and then down once more. I swept my light across the open basement. It was unfinished, the walls cement, as well as the floor. Small frosted windows sat near the beams of the floor above. The basement had just been used for storage. I found cardboard boxes filled with Christmas decorations and a small wooden chest filled with important papers like birth certificates and old pay stubs. Above me a creak. I froze and turned off my light. A thud. Another creak. Someone was walking on the ground floor. I wrestled with what to do and I could feel my heart thumping wildly in my chest. Did I call out? Admit that I was trespassing? Did I go upstairs and try to sneak out? Did I stay and hope they didn't come down? I crept slowly to the foot of the wooden stairs that I had come down. I had left the basement door open and cursed myself for my stupidity. I listened to the footsteps above me. Sweat stung my eyes and I wiped it away. The footsteps came into the kitchen, and I moved away from the bottom of the stairs. I looked for a place to hide, and wedged myself in behind a stack of plastic totes along the wall, just as I heard footsteps on the stairs. I held my breath. I peeked out, but it was so dark down here I couldn't see much more than a dark shape. It paused at the foot of the stairs, and then turned and went back up. I waited for what felt like an eternity, but was probably only ten minutes. I didn't hear any movement upstairs. I left my hiding spot and went to the foot of the stairs. I took them slowly, exited into the kitchen, and then shut the door as quietly as I could. I paused there for a long time, listening. If anyone else was still in the house, they weren't moving. I hurried to the front door and pulled it open. I stepped out onto the porch and pulled the door shut behind me. I rushed off of the porch and into the middle of the street. I turned and looked at the house and felt sheer terror as my eyes swept up to one of the windows that looked out into the street from the master bedroom. Someone was standing there, staring right at me. The same dark shadow I had seen in the basement. I turned and ran down the street to my car. I rushed to the motel and went inside my room. The locked door wasn't enough. I pushed the heavy circular table that served as an eating area in the small room in front of the door too, and found myself exhausted. I fell into a restless sleep. I dreamed of a dark shape and of that curved blade. When I woke the next morning, I thought about going to the local police and telling them who I was and who had hired me. But in my experience, most cops don't take kindly to private detectives, and I was afraid they'd keep me from Benson Street. So I showered, dressed, and headed back over. I felt a little more comfortable in the daytime. I went back into Mary's house and looked for evidence of someone else having been there the night before, but found none. Then I went back outside and started at the end of the street and tried the front doors as I moved around the cul-de-sac and went up the other side. 
A lot of doors were locked, but two were unlocked. The houses I could enter were a lot like the ones I had been in the night before. It seemed as if whoever had lived there had just vanished, or up and left without taking anything. In the first house I found a full set of luggage, and it didn't seem like the overstuffed closet and drawers full of clothes had been touched. No one had packed for a trip. In the other house I found something rather alarming. It sat right out on a bedside table in the master bedroom. A knife exactly like the one I had found in Mary's home, hidden away. The same bone handle, the same runes carved into it, the same curving blade, sharp as can be. I went back to the middle unlocked house and began to search. It took me a couple of hours, but then I found it, stashed away in a floor vent, an identical knife. I left quickly and went to my car. I found a little diner and stopped for lunch, and sat at the table with my phone, searching online for any sort of information I could find on the knives. I searched for news about cults in the area and came up with nothing. I had taken pictures of the knives and tried to find anything about the runes, but ran into a dead end there as well. After lunch, I went back to Benson Street and stood on the sidewalk. I was fairly sure that if I broke into the locked homes, I would find knives there as well. I walked slowly past the houses and paused at the end of the street. Past the end of the road were woods, mostly evergreens. A dirty little path cut from the end of the street and through the lawns of the two homes in front of me into the trees. I started down the path. It was well-worn and continued well into the woods, curving around trees and overgrown plants. I walked along it for nearly half an hour before I saw it. The church was old and made of wood, squat and slanted. A spire went up over the front double doors, a strange symbol that resembled an inverted cross made of what looked like iron nailed to the front. I went to the building and tried the doors. They opened freely. Surely the police hadn't missed this strange building. Inside were a few rows of pews and an altar at the back of the large open room. A large leather-bound book with yellowing pages that curled at the corners sat open on the altar next to a silver cup stained red inside. I couldn't read the book. It was written in the same strange runes that were etched on the handles of the knives. I took pictures of a few pages and hurried back outside. Standing in the church, I had felt a growing sense of unease, almost like I was being watched. I thought of the shadowy figure that had been watching me from the window of Mary's home and shivered. I went back to Benson Street and rushed to my car. I drove to the safety of my motel and went in and locked the door, barring it once more with the table. I called Shelley and told her about the church. She hadn't ever heard her sister or brother-in-law speak of it. I hung up with her, and it struck me for the first time that the sisters were named Mary Shelley. One of their parents had a literary sense of humor. I called Mary and Tom's two children next, one after the other, and asked about their parents' religious stances. They told me their parents were Catholic, but not practicing. Church hadn't been a thing in their lives as kids. I sat on the end of the bed and scrolled through the internet, trying to find the strange inverted cross sigil I had seen on the front of the church. It took hours, but eventually, I found it. I clicked on the picture, and it took me to an amateur website that seemed to be all about various demons and hell spawn. It was the symbol of something called the Nameless One, and it was said he would bring his followers great wealth and power in exchange for sacrifices. I thought immediately of how the homes on Benson Street were much bigger than those nearby. I set my phone aside and shivered. The whole thing was freaking me out. I do not scare easily, but that job I had taken was proving to be a strange one, and I couldn't get over the feeling that I was messing with something I shouldn't. When the sun went down, I drove to the local bar, a place called Mel's. It was busy and I took a stool at the bar and had a beer. Over the course of a few hours, I spoke to a few townspeople about Benson Street. I was truthful with who I was and what I was doing. A lot of people clammed up when I brought up the street. I didn't ask about the church or the symbol I had seen, but I did ask about the houses and how they seemed to be so much more expensive. One old guy gave me something. Everyone on that street was a weirdo, he told me, and we all know it. Wherever they are, it isn't good. Another patron of the bar brought up how people in the area had been going missing regularly for the last few years. Drifters and homeless folk, no one important, no one who got the police involved very much. Back at my motel, I called Mary and Tom's oldest. 
I asked if they had grown up in the house on Benson Street, and he told me no. His parents had bought it a few years ago after Tom had retired a few years early. I thanked him and hung up. I was asleep when a thump at my door woke me. I went to the peephole and peered out but could see no one. Fear gripped my heart with its icy hand. I went to the window and carefully pulled the blind back at the edge and looked out into the parking lot. A line of four people stood there, right in the middle of the black pavement, staring right at my room. It was dark, and I couldn't quite make out who they were. Man or woman, I couldn't tell. I had no idea of their age. They wore dark clothing, robes of some sort, with the hoods pulled up. As I watched, they turned as a group and walked out of the lot and across the street. I watched them until they faded into the darkness. I didn't sleep the rest of the night. The next morning I went back to Benson Street. I was drawn to it, or more specifically, to the church in the woods. I hurried down the path and entered that strange building again. Someone else had been there. The book and cup that had been on the altar were gone. I did a more thorough search of the building and found a small trap door just behind the altar. I lifted the hatch open and shone my flashlight into the hole. A rickety wooden ladder led down ten or so feet to a dirt floor. I took a deep breath and started to climb down. There was a tunnel, curving away to the right when I got off the ladder and turned around. I kept my light on and crept forward. It twisted this way and that until it opened up into a large chamber, and I found the people who had lived on Benson Street. They all lay dead on the dirty floor, nude with their arms crossed over their chests. I needed to tell the police. I turned and came face to face with a man in a hooded robe. Intruder, he screamed at me, and I pushed past him and ran. I knew he was chasing me. I could hear this heavy footsteps right behind me. A chill blew through the tunnel as I ran. Voices burst forth from nowhere, speaking a language I couldn't understand. I got to the ladder and began to climb. I got to the top and rolled out of the hole and turned and used my foot to slam the door shut. There was no way to latch it. I stood and turned, shocked to find a hundred or more candles had been placed throughout the church, all burning. So too were more robed figures. One came at me as the trap door behind me burst open and my original pursuer came through. I tussled with the new robed figure. He wrapped his arms around me, but I shoved him off into the altar. The candles there shook and then fell. A musty carpet that led from the altar to the front door lit immediately. Soon the room was alive with flame. The robed figures howled and I was forgotten as they attempted to put the fire out. I ran for the door and burst through it and into the woods. It was still morning. The sun hung low in the sky, the light getting cut off by the many trees. I turned and looked at the church. It was burning. No one came out after me. I turned and ran for Benson Street. I didn't stop running until I made it to my car. I drove to the motel and checked out and packed up my things. I didn't call the police until I was an hour away from the town. I told them what I had found and hung up before they could start asking me questions. Then I called Shelley and told her everything I had found. The knives, the church, the robed figures. I could tell she didn't believe me, and she started to cry and curse me out for not giving her something real. I understood, though. I hardly believed the words coming out of my own mouth. In the end, I didn't speak with Shelley again. I didn't go after her for the unpaid balance she owed me. A week or so later at home, I searched the internet for any sort of news story about the church behind Benson Street, but only found one little article that had been written in the local paper about a fire in the woods there. It didn't mention the church. In the three years since then, I've seen robed figures a handful of times. Sometimes I don't trust my own eyes and wonder if I'm hallucinating. I don't think I am. I think the followers of the Nameless One are keeping an eye on me. They never approach me. They never threaten me. But they are there, right? They are watching? I've never told anyone this, but I thought this might be a good time and place to talk about the winter I spent at Green Hill. I was only 20, so about 15 years ago, and I had just dropped out of college. I honestly was never much of a student, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and I was just kind of drifting when this great job opportunity sort of just fell into my lap. There's a place called Green Hill in northern North Dakota. It's an awesome state park. It does crazy business during the summer months, and it's absolutely gorgeous. 
but they have to close in the winter times because the snow gets so bad. We're talking like 10 feet of snow sometimes. But with that much snow, it can cave in the roofs of cabins and other buildings, so they hire four people every year to basically keep knocking the snow off. There are other things you have to do, but snow removal from roofs is the main thing. My uncle had done it a few years back in the day, and he stayed in touch with the guy who put the whole winter program together, and he knew I was hurting for money, so he put me in touch with the guy. A few weeks later, I was flying up to North Dakota. The guy who I spoke to was too old to do the job himself anymore, but his right-hand man Jerry picked me up from the airport and drove me to Green Hill. The first snow hadn't come yet, so I got to appreciate just how beautiful the area was. The trees were bare, but I could just imagine how it all looked in greens, or even the orange and yellows of fall. And there were plenty of evergreens, too. The whole place was just cool. That first night, the four of us all stayed in the main resort building, where Jerry spent his winters. Jerry was like 50, a big guy who liked to work out. And there was Mike, a guy in his 30s who was going through a divorce and had been looking to get away. And lastly, there was Spencer, who would be staying closest to my cabin, so he was going to be the guy I saw the most. Green Hill was a big park, and we each got a cabin, and we were on the hook for, like, a ton of acres. Spence was barely older than me, and we hit it off right away. We all got pretty drunk that night, and so Jerry didn't drive us around to our cabins until the next afternoon, and not the morning as he had planned. A week passed before the first snow, and I spent time four-wheeling around my area, clearing fallen branches from roadways, doing some light upkeep on various buildings, and things like that. But when that snow did come, boy did it come with a vengeance. I woke up one morning to two or three feet of snow. The four-wheeler stayed in the shed, and the snowmobile came out. I went around to the roofs of the buildings I was in charge of and shoveled the snow off, or even used a flamethrower. That was quite the thrill getting to melt away snow with a big jet of fire. For that next week, it snowed every day and night, and melting or shoveling the snow off of cabins proved to be a full-time job. My cell phone didn't get any service here, but the four of us had radios, so we would chat a bit most nights. Jerry kept reminding of us a rule he had given us on the very first night. When the snow came, no one was to be outside after the sun went down. I thought it was kind of a weird rule and asked him why. The guy took a minute to answer me, but he said it was just easy to get lost in the dark, and with the snow, you would freeze before any of them could come to get you when they realized you were missing. But after two weeks of being completely alone beyond short little chats on the radio, I was going stir-crazy. I radioed Spence and told him that I was going to head over one evening after I got done with my work. He seemed excited to have company. I went over and we drank beer and played cards and listened to some records. We had a good time, and by the time I was leaving his cabin and heading back to mine miles and miles away, it was past midnight. He told me I should stay and leave in the morning, but it was quite a trip, and I was worried about getting to the snow late in the day, so I went ahead and split. It was spooky driving by myself that late for real. An absolutely surreal experience, and I kept letting my mind get away from me. Every shadow I saw was a bear, or a wolf, things like that. I took a turn on the trail and my headlight swept over something directly in the middle of the path, and I slowed my snowmobile to a stop. It was a deer, or what was left of it at least. The animal had been torn in half, its blood stained the snow around it. It was snowing, but there was hardly any snow on the corpse, so I know it had been killed recently. I couldn't help but feel as though I was being watched. I freaked and ran for my snowmobile and kept on. When I got to my cabin, I went in and locked the door. The whole two hours back from that deer carcass, I had been sure whatever had killed it was following me. I convinced myself I could hear it crashing through the frozen snow and bushes along the trail. I sat for a long time at one of my windows, staring out into the darkness. I saw nothing and eventually fell asleep, right there in the chair I had dragged over. I told Spence the next day on the radio about the deer and he told me he had been finding animals that had been torn apart all around his area. We decided to tell Jerry, but I omitted the fact that I found my deer during the night. He told us we needed to stay away from anything like that, and the bodies wouldn't last long in the wilderness. It wasn't something we needed to worry about. He told us again to make sure we stayed in our cabins at night. Another week passed, 
We were there for three months, and time was slowing to a crawl. I felt lonely and secluded, and I hadn't counted on just how hard it would be not to see people every day. Eventually, none of us could raise Spence on his radio. We had still been talking every night, but I hadn't gone to visit him again. Jerry said he was going to drive over there and asked me to come one morning. He had to go right by my cabin to get to Spence, so I told him I would. We drove our snowmobiles down the trail. We didn't come across the deer carcass I had found. When we got to Spence's cabin, my heart sank. His front door was hanging wide open, and as we went inside, we saw the place was trashed. The kitchen table was turned over, along with a chair. Spence was nowhere to be found. Jerry muttered something under his breath, and I'll never forget it. It sounded like he said, damn it, we had a deal, but I can't be sure. When I asked him what he had said, he told me he was just thinking that Spence had gone stir-crazy. He told me it happened sometimes. People just couldn't handle the seclusion, and they went crazy, and they wandered out into the woods and were never seen again. We checked the shed nearby, and Spencer's snowmobile was still there. If he had left, he had walked. We searched the area, but found no signs of him. Back at my cabin later on in the day, I felt sick to my stomach. I had spoken with Spence just that night. He hadn't seemed crazy. He was making jokes, laughing, all that stuff talking about how much he missed women. It just didn't make sense that he would have gone out into the woods to die. A few nights later, I was woken by a strange sound. I crept to a window and looked out. There was something at the tree line, moving slowly around my cabin. I followed its movement, going from window to window. I could just see a dark shape, hard to make out in the darkness and snow. But whatever it was, it was big, much bigger than a man. I thought it might be a bear, but it was walking upright. I watched it for hours, circling my cabin. It never approached. The next morning I went to look for tracks, but the snow was falling so heavily there were none. After some thought, I called Jerry and told him what I had seen. He told me I was probably just seeing things, but there was something in his voice that alarmed me. He sounded as though he was hiding something. A few mornings later, when I woke up and went out to start my work, I was shocked to find deep marks on my cabin door. I had heard nothing the night before, but it looked like something had come along and tried to get in. Something with big claws had raked through the wood as though it was butter. I called Jerry again, and he told me I had better come to stay with him after I got my work done. He said I would be fine during the daytime hours, but I needed to make sure I was at his place by nightfall. He told me he would tell me everything. I was terrified. Something strange was going on, and I rushed through my work and headed to Jerry. He poured us drinks when I got there and we sat inside while the sun went down. He told me everything. It was so crazy I wouldn't have believed him if Spence hadn't gone missing, and I hadn't seen that shape in the night. He told me there were large creatures in the woods here. They came with the snow and they stayed all winter. They were horrific beasts with claws and teeth, but they were smart, and they had agreed to leave the cabins alone. Anything they found in the woods at night was fair game, but they had stuck by their agreement for nearly a hundred years, at least until Spence. Jerry was worried that one of the best had gone rogue, or maybe they all had. He wondered if we needed to abandon our posts and leave. Something slammed against his door just then. It burst open and I saw the most terrifying creature I have ever seen in my life. It was covered in fur, white like the snow, and it had a snarling mouth lined with razor-sharp teeth. Its eyes were all black, its fingers ending in six-inch claws. Jerry was up in a flash, running for a shotgun that hung on the wall. The creature saw him and ran for him, moving impossibly fast. I'm ashamed to say it, but I ran. I ran right out the door. As I dove atop my snowmobile, I heard a gunshot, and then I heard Jerry scream. I turned the machine on and just drove. I don't know where I was going. I just drove along the trail. I never looked back. There was a small town nearby, and that's where I headed getting there at about two in the morning. Nothing was open save a small hotel. I went in and told the man behind the counter everything. He listened to me, and I could tell as I spoke that he knew of the creatures. He gave me a room for free, and the next morning I left, getting a ride to a small airport a few hours away. Greenhill closed for good that winter, and I've heard that no one goes into those woods anymore. I'm glad about that. Let those things eat deer and not people.
I can still remember the day I arrived. The Pacific Northwest, with its towering pines and misty vistas, was a world away from the urban jungle I'd called home for so long. I needed this change, and craved it like a parched man in the desert craves water. I was eager to leave behind the noise, the pollution, the rat race, and dive into a life where nature was my closest neighbor. My new home was a modest cabin, perched on the edge of an expansive forest, miles from the nearest town. It was a charming little place, rustic yet comfortable, surrounded by a world of emerald green that seemed to stretch into eternity. The air was rich with the scent of pine and damp earth, a scent that brought peace to my heart and calm to my restless spirit. As an avid hiker, the allure of the forest was irresistible. It called to me in a way nothing else had ever before. The first time I ventured into it, I felt like an explorer stepping onto uncharted lands. The tall trees seemed to whisper secrets in the wind, and each rustling leaf sounded like an invitation to go further, to get lost in the green labyrinth. I spent those early days mapping out trails, drinking in the beauty around me. Each hike was an adventure, a journey of discovery. I'd climb steep hills, traverse over babbling brooks, and navigate through dense thickets. There was something raw and primal about being in the heart of nature, something that awoke a primitive sense of self within me. One Saturday, about a month after moving in, I decided to venture deeper into the forest than I ever had before. I packed some food, water, a compass, and my trusty old camera. Setting out at dawn, I followed a meandering path that I had never taken. The forest seemed to grow denser, the canopy thicker, blotting out the sunlight and bathing the undergrowth in a cool, ghostly half-light. It was eerie and beautiful all at once. After several hours, I found myself in a remote part of the forest, a place where the trees seemed older, their trunks thicker, their roots gnarled and twisted. It was as if I had wandered into a forgotten realm, a place untouched by human hands. And then I saw it, an unusual clearing that seemed out of place amidst the disorder of the wild. It was an open glade, the grass unusually green, dotted with a circle of stones that looked meticulously arranged. The stones were large, moss-covered, and worn down by time, but they were placed with a precision that belied natural formation. The sight of it sent a chill down my spine. Something about it felt unnatural, out of place, but I shrugged it off, attributing the sensation to my overactive imagination. After all, I was alone in an unfamiliar part of the forest. It was natural to feel a little spooked. So I took a few pictures of the stone circle, promised myself I would return later to investigate further, and continued on my hike. Unbeknownst to me, that stone circle would become an obsession, an enigma that would change my life forever. But that's a story for another day. For then, I was just a man in the wilderness, blissfully unaware of the shadows that lurked just out of sight. The days after discovering the stone circle were filled with an undercurrent of fascination, a magnetism that drew my thoughts back to that odd arrangement in the secluded glade. It felt like a puzzle waiting to be solved, an enigma nestled in the heart of the forest. Despite the strange unease I had initially felt, my curiosity outweighed my apprehension. One afternoon, I decided to return to the glade. I followed the same meandering trail I had taken before, but this time, Every rustling leaf and every creaking branch seemed to resonate with an undertone of mystery. The forest felt different, as if it was hiding a secret, and I was the intruder seeking to unveil it. When I finally reached the glade, the sight of the stone circle sent a shiver down my spine. I was filled with a peculiar sense of intrusion, as though I had stepped into a sacred, forbidden place. The air seemed to thrum with a silent energy, the stones standing sentinel-like, etched against the green canvas of the clearing. I stood at the edge, gazing at the circle, allowing my gaze to trace the rough edges of each stone. They were silent storytellers, relics of a time unknown, their tales lost to the ages. I felt a strange compulsion to step into the circle, to feel the space within. It was an irrational desire, yet powerful, pulling at me like a relentless tide. Against my better judgment, I stepped forward, the moment my boot crossed the invisible boundary of the circle, a sudden icy gust of wind swept through the clearing, rustling the leaves and making the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. It was an odd reaction to what could have been nothing more than a sudden weather change, 
but it shook me. The air within the circle felt different, charged with a strange energy. There was a palpable stillness, as if time itself was holding its breath. The outside world seemed distant, the rustling trees and chirping birds sounding muffled, as though I was underwater. It was eerie, but there was a certain tranquility to it as well. I sat down in the middle of the circle, letting the odd sensations wash over me. I spent a few minutes in silence, soaking in the uncanny atmosphere, before the cold seeped through my jacket and forced me to retreat. Walking back home, my mind was a whirlpool of thoughts and theories. I tried to rationalize my experiences, attributing them to my overactive imagination. After all, it was just a stone circle in a forest clearing. There was nothing supernatural about it. But despite my rational explanations, I couldn't shake off the peculiar feelings. That evening, as I sat by the fireplace, flicking through the pictures I had taken, I couldn't help but feel a certain apprehension creep into my mind. Little did I know then that my encounter with the stone circle was just the beginning, a prelude to a series of events that would shatter the peaceful tranquility of my forest retreat. That night, as I crawled into bed, the image of the stone circle was etched into my mind's eye. The silent stones, the eerie tranquility within their boundary, the peculiar chill, all of it felt like a surreal dream. I closed my eyes hoping for a peaceful sleep, but sleep that night was anything but peaceful. I was jolted awake by a vivid nightmare. I was back in the forest, under the cover of a moonless night. The trees were menacing silhouettes against the dark sky, their branches reaching out like skeletal fingers. The silence was deafening, a hollow emptiness that seemed to seep into my bones. In my dream, I found myself standing at the edge of the stone circle, its outline barely visible in the dim light. There was an oppressive heaviness in the air, a fear that clung to me like a second skin. Despite the fear, I felt myself being drawn towards the circle, each step heavier than the last. As I stepped into the circle, the wind picked up, whipping around me in a furious gust. And then, from the depths of the forest, there emerged a low, rumbling growl. It was an inhuman sound, something primal and terrifying. The ground beneath me began to shake, the stones vibrating with an unearthly energy. I woke up with a start, my heart pounding in my chest. The room was dark, the only sound the quiet hum of the wind outside. I was drenched in cold sweat, my breath coming out in ragged gasps. It took me a few minutes to realize that it was just a dream, a nightmarish figment of my imagination. As I lay in bed, staring at the shadowy ceiling, I tried to shake off the remnants of the dream. I told myself it was the product of my fascination with the stone circle, the strange sensations I had felt within it. It was just a dream, nothing more. But over the next few nights the dream returned, each time more vivid and terrifying. The stone circle, the growling sound, the vibrating earth. It was as if my subconscious was trapped in a terrifying loop. Despite my attempts to dismiss the dreams as mere flights of fancy, I couldn't shake off the unease that had settled in my heart. My days were filled with trepidation, my nights fraught with nightmares. I started to dread the coming of night, fear gnawing at the edges of my mind. In the silence of my cabin, the line between the tranquility I had sought and the isolation I felt started to blur. I was far from the city, from the comfort of human presence, living on the edge of an ancient forest that held a stone circle that invaded my dreams but I refused to succumb to fear. I decided to face it, to confront whatever it was that was turning my dreams into nightmares. I was resolved to unravel the mystery of the stone circle, oblivious to the fact that I was standing on the precipice of an abyss I could not yet see. Despite the terror that plagued my nights, the allure of the forest remained irresistible. There was a strange dichotomy between the fear that gripped me in the darkness and the peace I found in the daylight. Yet, as I ventured deeper into the woods, I felt the shadow of my nightmares stretch into the waking hours. One afternoon, while on a solitary hike, I noticed something that set my heart pounding. Just a little distance off the beaten path, partially hidden by a cluster of ferns, I spotted a figure. It was nothing more than a shadow, an aberration in the sunlight filtering through the dense canopy above. Yet it was distinctly human in shape. I squinted, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. The figure didn't move. It simply stood there, a silhouette against the trees. I called out, but there was no response. 
just the echo of my voice bouncing off the trees. My heart raced, the eerie sensation from the glade returning tenfold. Fighting the surge of fear, I ventured closer, but as I approached, the figure seemed to dissipate, the shadow melting into the dappled sunlight, leaving no trace behind. I stood there, in the midst of the forest, a chill running down my spine. I told myself it was just a trick of the light, an optical illusion. But the encounter rattled me. The serenity I usually found in the forest was replaced by a sense of unease. The trees seemed to loom a little taller, the shadows a bit darker. The line between my dreams and reality was beginning to blur. Over the next few days, the shadowy figure began to appear more frequently. Each sighting was fleeting, just a momentary glimpse before it disappeared. It seemed to lurk at the edge of my vision, a specter in the heart of the forest. The feeling of being watched, of being followed, crept into my hikes. I would often spin around, expecting to see someone behind me, but I would find nothing. Nothing but the rustling leaves and the quiet murmur of the forest. Even in the safety of my cabin, I couldn't shake the feeling of unease. Every creak of the wooden floorboards, every rustle of the wind against the windows, set me on edge. My haven in the wilderness was becoming a prison, the solitude morphing into isolation. The tranquility of the forest had turned into an oppressive silence, the peace into paranoia. What was once my escape was now the source of my fear. But I wasn't ready to admit defeat. The rational part of me still clung to the belief that it was all in my head, a figment of my overactive imagination. With every ounce of courage I had left, I decided to fight the fear, to confront the shadowy figure that haunted my dreams and my waking hours. I was resolved to reclaim the peace I had sought in the wilderness, unaware of the darkness that lurked just out of sight. Over the course of the following week, I threw myself into a self-styled investigation. Every morning, with an undeterred resolve, I would step into the forest, determined to face the specter that had been haunting my days and nights. My heart pounded each time I crossed the boundary of the stone circle, the memories of my nightmares fresh in my mind. I examined the stones in minute detail, looking for any sign, any hint of what could be causing the strange occurrences. Days turned into a blur of fear and fascination as I ventured deeper and deeper into the forest, my curiosity fueled by each fleeting encounter with the shadowy figure. I would find myself standing at the spot where I had seen it, staring at the empty space, the chilling echoes of my dreams whispering in the back of my mind. On one of these treks, I stumbled upon an old, weathered journal partially buried under a pile of leaves near the stone circle. The leather-bound book was falling apart, its pages yellowed and brittle with age. The entries were in an old-fashioned script, the ink faded, but still legible. As I flipped through the pages, I realized that the journal belonged to a settler who had lived in this region over a hundred years ago. His entries spoke of a peaceful life in the heart of nature, but as I delved deeper into his writings, a familiar dread began to creep into his words. The settler had started seeing a shadowy figure in the forest. He wrote of an inexplicable fear, of nightmares that were hauntingly similar to mine. The parallels sent a shiver down my spine. His experiences mirrored my own, a chilling echo across the ages. His last entry was the most disturbing. It spoke of a decision to face his fears, to confront the shadowy figure, just as I had resolved to do. The entry ended abruptly, the narrative cut off, leaving me with a lingering sense of dread. The discovery of the journal was unsettling, the parallels were too striking to be mere coincidence. The realization that I was not the first to experience these events, that they had happened before, made my situation even more terrifying. In the silence of the forest, with the stone circle looming ominously in the background, I felt a wave of fear wash over me, but it was accompanied by a strange sense of determination. The shadowy figure, the nightmares, the stone circle, and now the settler's journal, they were all pieces of a puzzle a puzzle that I was determined to solve. Armed with the journal, I decided to dig deeper, to unearth the truth hidden in the heart of the forest. I had no idea where this path would lead me, no inkling of the dark secrets I was about to unravel. But one thing was clear, I was in too deep to turn back now. The discovery of the journal sparked an obsessive quest for answers. I spent countless hours poring over the settler's entries, attempting to decipher his cryptic words. The tales of his encounters with the shadowy figure and his descriptions of nightmarish dreams felt chillingly familiar. 
creating a tapestry of fear and intrigue that echoed my own experiences. Days melted into nights as I lost myself in the settler's world. His narrative painted a vivid picture of the forest in a time long past, weaving tales of indigenous tribes, forgotten legends, and an omnipresent, inexplicable fear. One entry spoke of a local legend that the settler had heard from an elder of a nearby tribe. It was a story about a guardian spirit, a spectral figure who watched over the forest, bound by an ancient curse to the stone circle. The elder warned the settler about venturing too close to the stone circle. He claimed that those who dared to intrude upon the spirit's domain would be haunted by nightmares, visited by the spirit itself, their peace shattered until they respected its boundaries. The settler dismissed the elder's warnings, attributing them to superstitions. But as his entries progressed, it was clear that the terror he experienced mirrored the elder's ominous warnings. Just like me, he had started to see a shadowy figure in the forest. His dreams turned into nightmares, his peace replaced by fear. The parallels between the settler's experiences and my own were impossible to ignore. I was living his nightmare, walking in his footsteps. His warnings were now mine to heed, and just like him, I had dismissed them, attributing my experiences to mere figments of my imagination. But the tangible evidence of the journal, the eerie resemblance of our experiences, and the unsettling encounters with the shadowy figure gave credence to the tribal legend. The more I delved into his entries, the more I began to entertain the possibility of a supernatural explanation. In a world ruled by logic, the idea of a cursed stone circle and a guardian spirit seemed fantastical. But the fear that gripped me, the experiences that invaded my dreams, and the unsettling encounters in the forest were far too real. Deciding to follow the breadcrumb trail of the settlers' experiences, I ventured into the nearby town, seeking to find any remnants of the indigenous tribe the settler had mentioned. My hope was to find someone who could shed light on the legend, provide some context, and some understanding of what I was experiencing. As I set foot in the town, the sense of isolation that had become my constant companion began to fade. But my journey into the past had only just begun. I was stepping into a world that had been forgotten by time, into tales that had been lost in the annals of history. Little did I know the gravity of the truths I was about to uncover. The small town was quaint, a picture-perfect portrait of rustic simplicity. I found my way to the local museum, hoping it would be a reservoir of the area's history. The museum was housed in a charming old building that bore the marks of time, its wooden panels whispering tales of the past. Inside, the museum held a captivating collection of artifacts from the town's early settlers, indigenous tribes, and the vast wilderness beyond. I was particularly interested in anything related to the local tribes, hoping to find references to the guardian spirit mentioned in the settler's journal. There I met Rebecca, a tribal historian who was well-versed in the lore of the indigenous people. When I mentioned the guardian spirit and the stone circle, her eyes widened. She confirmed that it was a legend passed down through generations. According to tribal lore, the spirit was once a tribal chief who had been cursed by a rival shaman, forever bound to protect the forest and the stone circle. As she relayed the legend, her words echoed the tale the settler had dismissed as mere superstition. The chills that ran down my spine were a stark reminder that my experiences were aligning far too closely with the legend. Rebecca also introduced me to a concept that was foreign to my urban mind. The forest, to the tribe, was not merely a collection of trees, but a living entity, its spirit woven into the very fabric of their existence. The guardian spirit, the stone circle, and the forest were interconnected and inseparable. I left the museum with more questions than answers, my mind spinning with the weight of the stories Rebecca had shared. I wandered aimlessly around the town, the tribal lore echoing in my head, the connection between the legend, the settlers' experiences, and my own encounters becoming ominously clear. The sun began to set, casting long shadows through the sleepy town. The familiar dread began to creep in as the line between day and night blurred. The fear that I had come to associate with the forest began to seep into the streets of the town, the shadowy figure never far from my thoughts. That night, as I lay in the comfort of a small town inn, my dreams were once again invaded by the stone circle and the shadowy figure. 
but this time there was an addition. I saw the face of a tribal chief, his expression stoic, his eyes reflecting an age-old sorrow. I awoke with a start, my heart pounding, the chief's face etched in my memory. I could no longer deny the truth that was staring me in the face. I was not merely living in the shadow of a forgotten legend, but I was inexplicably entwined in its narrative. The coming days held the promise of more revelations, and despite the fear that gripped me, I was determined to face it. I was a part of this story now, and I was resolved to see it through, unaware of how this encounter with the past would change me forever. Armed with the knowledge imparted by Rebecca, I made my way back to the cabin, a newfound determination in my stride. The pieces of the puzzle were slowly falling into place. The forest, the shadowy figure, the stone circle, and the tribal legend were interconnected, their narratives woven into a chilling tapestry. I found myself standing at the edge of the stone circle. The sun was beginning to set, the fading light casting an eerie glow on the ancient stones. The sense of foreboding was palpable, a silent whisper in the wind that rustled the leaves overhead. With the tribal chief's face etched in my mind, I stepped into the circle, the tales from the settler's journal and Rebecca's words reverberating in my head. The shadowy figure appeared at the edge of my vision, its presence no longer as terrifying as it once was. In a voice barely above a whisper, I addressed the figure, acknowledging it as the tribal chief, the guardian spirit bound by an ancient curse. As the words left my lips, the air around me grew still. The shadowy figure seemed to solidify, taking the shape of the tribal chief from my dreams. I spoke of respect for the forest, the tribe, and the guardian spirit's curse. I apologized for my intrusion, for the disrespect I had shown by dismissing the experiences and the fear as figments of my imagination. The shadowy figure stood silent, its form wavering in the dimming light. A sense of understanding seemed to pass between us, a silent acceptance of my realization and remorse. As I finished speaking, the figure began to dissolve into the shadows, leaving behind an eerie silence. The encounter left me shaken but strangely relieved. The fear that had gripped me for weeks had lessened. The forest seemed less menacing, the trees no longer loomed over me, and the stone circle appeared less ominous in the dying light. That night, for the first time in weeks, my dreams were free of the shadowy figure and the stone circle. I slept peacefully, the whispers of the forest fading into a lullaby that lulled me into a deep sleep. As dawn broke, I woke up to the peaceful sounds of the forest, the memories of the previous day echoing in my mind, the realization of the truth, the encounter with the guardian spirit, and the peace that followed was an experience that was hard to digest. I spent the day reflecting on my experiences, the tales from the journal, and the tribal legend. It was a journey that I hadn't expected when I decided to escape to the solitude of the forest, a journey that took me on a path of self-discovery, respect for ancient lore, and an understanding of fear. As the sun set, I couldn't help but feel a sense of tranquility. The forest, the stone circle, and the shadowy figure no longer held the same terror for me. I had learned to respect their presence, to understand their significance. I had begun this journey seeking solace in the heart of nature. Little did I know that it would lead me down a path of ancient legends, fear, and ultimately, a revelation that changed my perspective forever. In the days that followed, my existence in the forest took on a new rhythm. I had learned to coexist with the guardian spirit and the stone circle my respect for the forest and its ancient lore growing with each passing day. I found myself spending more time outside, exploring the forest with a renewed sense of awe. The towering trees, the rustling leaves, the melodious call of birds, everything was touched with an air of reverence. Each element was a testament to the spirit that watched over it, an echo of the tribal chief's unending vigil. Despite the tranquility, the presence of the guardian spirit was always palpable, a silent shadow that followed my every step. It was a constant reminder of the tribal legend, a sobering testament to the responsibility we held towards nature and its ancient lore. I continued to delve deeper into the settler's journal, finding solace and understanding in his experiences that mirrored my own. His tales of fear, confusion, and finally acceptance resonated with me 
creating an unexpected bond across the ages. His narrative, though eerie, was a guiding light in my journey of understanding and respect. The forest, once a place of terror, had become a refuge, a realm of ancient legends and timeless wisdom. The shadowy figure, once a source of nightmares, was now a symbol of protection, a testament to the tribal chief's eternal watch. The stone circle, once an ominous symbol, was now a sacred space, a beacon of the forest's ancient lore. Each day I made it a point to visit the stone circle, a routine born out of respect and acknowledgement for the guardian spirit. Each visit was a silent pledge, a promise to honor the forest, its spirit, and the ancient lore that bound them. One day as I stood within the stone circle, I felt an inexplicable urge to touch one of the ancient stones. As my hand made contact with the weathered surface, a sudden wave of images flooded my mind. I saw the tribal chief, his face etched with a solemn resolve as he accepted the shaman's curse. I saw the transformation, his form shifting into a shadowy figure. I saw the generations of settlers and tribes, each living and breathing under his watchful gaze. And then I saw myself, my fear, my realization, and finally, my acceptance. As quickly as the visions came, they vanished, leaving me reeling. The stone circle seemed to hum with an ancient energy, the forest whispering tales of the guardian spirit. That night, my dreams were filled with visions of the tribal chief, the forest, and the stone circle. I saw the past, the present, and glimpses of a future where the forest continued to flourish under the guardian spirit's watch. Waking up the next morning, the weight of the vision still lingering in my mind, I realized that I was not just living with the legend, I was a part of it. The forest, the stone circle, and the guardian spirit had become an intrinsic part of my existence. Their stories entwined with mine in a timeless narrative of respect and understanding. Living amongst the echoes of the forest's ancient lore became a lifestyle. I found a peculiar sense of harmony, like I was a piece of a larger puzzle, perfectly fitting within the eons-old narrative of the forest. My days were spent studying the settler's journal, exploring the forest, and paying respects at the stone circle. Weeks turned into months, and the forest became my home. It sounds a soothing symphony that lulled me to sleep each night. The guardian spirit's presence was a comforting constant, its silhouette a familiar sight in the forest's shadowy depths. One evening, as I made my customary visit to the stone circle, I noticed a small ornate object, half buried in the soft soil near one of the stones. As I carefully unearthed it, I realized it was an ancient tribal talisman made of bone and feather intricately decorated with symbols that resonated with the tribe's culture. Holding the talisman, a sense of warmth washed over me, as if the guardian spirit was bestowing its approval. That night, I dreamed of the tribal chief, his figure less shadowy, his features more distinct. He held an identical talisman, passing it to me with a solemn nod, his eyes reflecting an unspoken gratitude. Upon waking, I held the talisman tighter, a physical reminder of the spectral guardian and the bond we had formed. The dreams, the visions, and now the talisman, they were all affirmations of my acceptance by the guardian spirit. I was no longer a stranger in the forest but a custodian of its ancient lore, blessed by the tribal chief himself. The talisman brought an unprecedented sense of calm, further fortifying my resolve to protect and respect the forest and its guardian spirit. Each day was a step deeper into the mystery that was the spirit of the forest, each night a closer understanding of the tribal chief's endless vigil. Word of the talisman and my experiences reached Rebecca in town, and she visited the cabin, her curiosity piqued. As she held the talisman, her eyes widened in surprise and respect. She explained that the talisman was a symbol of the tribal chief's favor, a token of protection and guidance. As I shared my experiences with Rebecca, from the initial fear to the eventual understanding and the spirit's favor, her eyes welled up. She spoke of the tribe's ancestors, their respect for the guardian spirit, and how my experiences and understanding resonated with the tribe's long-held beliefs. Rebecca's visit marked a turning point, a confirmation of my place within the forest's ancient narrative. The forest was not just a place I lived in, it was a part of me, its whispers echoing in my heart its spirit a part of my existence. The man who had arrived in the Pacific Northwest months ago was no more. 
In his place stood a protector, a custodian of the forest's lore, living under the watchful gaze of the guardian spirit, carrying forward a legacy that was centuries old. From then on, each day in the forest became a silent prayer, a humble pledge to protect and honor the spirit of the tribal chief, the guardian of the forest, the silhouette in the shadows. Time continued to pass, blurring the line between days and nights, seasons changing like the forest's constant breathing rhythm. I lived amongst the trees, nurtured by their ancient wisdom, guided by the guardian spirit's silent vigilance. The fear that had once consumed me was now a distant memory, replaced by reverence and a profound sense of responsibility. Word of my experiences had spread throughout the town, and I found myself becoming a bridge of sorts. People would come seeking guidance, bringing their fears and curiosities about the forest, the guardian spirit, and the stone circle. They came to learn, to understand, and to pay their respects, their skepticism slowly giving way to awe and understanding. I shared the tribal chief's tale, the ancient lore, and my own journey from fear to acceptance. Each time I shared the story, I felt the tribal chief's approval, his presence a constant reassurance that I was on the right path. This newfound role brought me closer to the community. Rebecca and I often collaborated to teach the town's younger generations about the forest's importance and the guardian spirit's role in protecting it. The children listened with wide eyes, their minds fertile ground for the seeds of respect and understanding. One day, as I stood in the heart of the stone circle, I realized that the narrative had come full circle. I was no longer just a participant in the tribal legend. I was a storyteller, a custodian of the lore, a link between the past and the present. I was carrying forward a legacy, revitalizing a bond that had almost been forgotten. The tribal chief's face appeared in my mind, his solemn gaze filled with approval. It was a silent affirmation, a spectral nod that acknowledged my role in preserving the lore. Holding the talisman close, I made a silent vow to uphold this legacy, to respect the forest and its spirit, and to continue the tribal chief's eternal vigil in my own way. With each passing day, the forest's ancient narrative was reborn in the hearts of the townspeople. The fear was replaced with understanding, the skepticism with respect. The forest, the stone circle, and the guardian spirit were no longer tales of terror, but revered elements of the town's cultural heritage. My cabin was no longer a solitary outpost, but a haven of learning and respect for the forest's spirit. The stone circle, once an ominous presence, was now a sacred place where people came to connect with the guardian spirit. The shadowy figure, once a source of nightmares, was now a symbol of protection, a revered entity in the town's collective consciousness. As I laid my head down each night, lulled to sleep by the forest's whispers, I couldn't help but feel an immense sense of fulfillment. I had arrived in the forest seeking solitude and peace. Instead, I had found a purpose, a legacy to carry forward. The forest, its guardian spirit, and the stone circle were no longer elements of an ancient legend, but an integral part of my life. I was a part of the forest, its whispers echoing in my soul, its spirit a guiding light in my existence. I was living the legend, upholding a legacy that was centuries old, carrying forward a narrative that would resonate through the ages. Several years passed. The once terrifying forest, the stone circle, and the shadowy guardian spirit had become essential facets of the town's identity. My cabin, the forest, and the stone circle had turned into places of pilgrimage, sites of learning and respect for the guardian spirit's tale and the forest's ancient lore. The town's inhabitants respected the forest, honoring the guardian spirit's watch, and passed down the tales to their children, the lore living on in the hearts of the new generation. A bond had been rekindled between the community and the forest, the ancient lore serving as a bridge uniting past, present, and the future. I continued to live within the forest's heart, my life a testament to the guardian spirit's tale. The shadowy figure, the tribal chief's spectral form, remained a constant presence, a companion in my solitary existence a guide on my path of understanding and respect. As years turned into decades, I felt my strength waning. Time, the one constant in this ever-changing world, was catching up to me. But the fear of the end was overshadowed by a sense of fulfillment. I had lived a life intertwined with the forest, had been a part of a timeless narrative, 
and had ensured that the tale of the guardian spirit was carried forward. On a quiet, starlit night, I found myself standing within the stone circle for what I knew would be the last time. Holding the talisman close, I felt the guardian spirit's presence, stronger than ever. I thanked it for the guidance, the wisdom, and for allowing me to be a part of its narrative. As the words left my lips, a sense of serenity washed over me, the spectral figure seemingly bowing in acknowledgement. With my last strength, I returned to my cabin. I could feel the forest's whispers growing softer, the guardian spirit's presence a comforting shadow in the corner of my vision. Laying down for the last time, I knew that my time had come. As my eyelids grew heavy, I was not filled with dread, but a sense of completion. I had been a part of a legacy, had lived a life of understanding and respect, and had ensured the tale of the guardian spirit was not forgotten. My role in this narrative was coming to an end, but the story would live on. I closed my eyes, a faint smile gracing my lips. The last sound I heard was the forest's whisper, a lullaby carried on the wind, a final farewell from the guardian spirit. And in that moment, I knew my spirit would join the spectral figure, forever entwined with the forest's essence, echoing in the wind, carried forward in the whispers of the ancient lore. The legacy of the guardian spirit would live on, the tale told and retold, generation after generation. And as part of this timeless narrative, I too would continue to exist. Not as a man who sought solace in the heart of the forest, but as a part of the legend that bound the forest, the stone circle and the guardian spirit, a legacy reborn. As the final breath left my body, I felt a spectral presence envelop me, the guardian spirit welcoming me into its fold. My last thought was a silent prayer, a pledge echoing in the forest's heart. The guardian's legacy would live on, whispered on the wind, echoed in the rustling leaves, carried forward by the ones who dared to listen, understand, and respect.